0: Welcome back to the Key in the Lake podcast, the premier whiskey podcast, now with the mention of whiskey in its title. Hey, this is Jake coming live from the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, maybe the best field trip I've ever taken for this podcast. With a view of the mountains right outside of the window that I'm looking out of, and slept in a haunted house of a hotel. I didn't see any ghosts. That's good. Wasn't scared at all. But reason why I'm in Stanley at the Stanley Hotel in Essis Park is because for my daytime job when I'm not making millions of dollars from this podcast I sell a little whiskey brand called Starward Whiskey and last night we had a beautiful masterclass at the vault at the Stanley Hotel which is a curated bottle shop that really only sells single barrels from brands all across the world and we can confidently say world because Starward has now sold three single barrels there and the the guest of the evening the main guest the highlight um the person of the reason why I'm in Colorado right now selling whiskey is sitting across the table for me and he was the keynote speaker if you will at the Stan, at the vault at the Stanley Hotel last night founder distiller brewer uh Scotland hater bourbon oh, hater <laughs> um but uh, the original founder of Starward Whiskey David Tully. Hey Jake thanks for having me back on I had to before you leave America
1: Yes um like every was,
0: male in my life, they're all leaving me.
1: Oh come on. It's i I'm not leaving. <laughs> this is not goodbye. It's just like my zip code's gonna be L A X instead of CTAC. Yeah. That's all
0: that's what Callum said last week on the podcast when he was moving to New York. It's not a it's not a goodbye. I'm like, it's a farewell. So yeah. Yeah. yeah but. Of
1: sorts. And it's kind of it's nice. This is the last um I'm gonna be a month off in Melbourne, um, settling in the family over there. So this is the last um masterclass before I head on on the road again and i can't think of a, a a better place to do it it's absolutely spectacular here at Esther's park yep. and um how fitting that you know we began this journey together and like i the last master class i do is with you
0: yeah we met the week you moved to america yeah <laughs> and here you are the week moving back to uh back to melbourne and settling in the family we're on the road together
1: yep Exactly
0: the Most picturesque place you could think of Yes Yeah, you, I walked outside this morning And you're like, oh The Rocky Mountains are right there And go for a run And there's elk attacking me
1: Yeah, well, you know I don't blame them
0: No, I think I was sweating out the whiskey They smelled the <laughs> We drank quite a bit last evening Not that much it's, it's, we we tasted a lot. That's right. I think yeah. that's a
1: really good good point, right? We did taste a lot of whiskey, which is amazing. And, and you know, it should be noted. Yeah, the vault at um, the Stanley Hotel is definitely an amazing whiskey destination. And, um, of course, they have amazing taste because they have a few single barrels of Starwood there. But, <laughs> but you know, um, the selections are really, really well curated and... and um, I loved kind of sampling through some of the, particularly some of the um, Colorado single malts, which were great. The Boulder one we had, I can't remember
0: which one that was called. Was that the 10 Essentials? 10 Essentials. Yeah, 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 that that was was very special. Delightful. Sazerac Rye, they just got a barrel pick-in of um, the Beam products were late. but. Yeah. Who do you get to try those? Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah. no, I've had some amazing, this is probably the fourth or fifth time I've been up here to visit with the guys and, you know, see other accounts while up here, but they're the ones that are really laying the
1: foundation of Starward up in the mountains of Colorado. They sure are. And we had a really great turnout, a very engaged audience that were curious. Um, I tried to keep my answers, (laughs) you know, um, tight. But I did get you know, I said, look, I'm just gonna spend thirty seconds on this and then I'm got Pete. heckled. Yeah. Got heckled by the audience when I went over thirty seconds. So we had a lot of fun.
0: Keep you on your toes up here.
1: Yes, they sure do.
0: And it's nice to have a nice intimate setting like that. I know it's it's what, twenty people probably total. Yeah. But people that wanna learn and wanna listen to people to whoever's in front of them presenting and taste things they haven't had tried before I,
1: th- I think it's the just right number actually yeah. once you move beyond 20 it becomes way more um audit- you know lecture style mm-hmm. even if it's not in or- in an auditorium yeah and i don't really appreciate that because as much as people might think i like the sound of my own voice it's really it's about um engagement and sort of bringing people along the journey of starwood but also um making sure that whatever they're curious about um, if they're interested, I'll share my kind of worldview on too.
0: Yeah, and it was really great how they got to try really the whole journey of Star Wars from day one to where we are, what we are just now launching in America for the first time. Yeah. And then getting to try it on an individual cast level with the uh, Stanley's third single barrel They've, they picked in the last year and a half.
1: And what a cracker, too. That's oh, like, um, you know, such a juicy, delicious, like rich. And I think, like, I think I said it last night, it's a really generous whiskey Mm. Um, without poking you in the eyes. Like, that's kind of the thing that you often find when you kind of start to ladder up lots of flavors. They just become really intense and overwhelming. And this was not that. Sitting
0: just under 114 proof, too, does not Mm. drink like that.
1: No. And that's, you know, for Starwood, quite high. We go into the barrel at 110. And so, and typically over the three to four Melbourne years that we're aging we get that um equal parts humidity and dry weather that means that you know if we go in at 110 maybe it's 111 or 12 yep. you know so almost um yeah i think it was a uh, 113.8 yep. right so that's tech that's high for us in inverted covers
0: they have the two highest single barrels that we had from our release of 2023 mm. they had go. Oh, their last one was 114 and this one's 113.8
1: yeah um, but they didn't drink like that, and I'm really happy about that.
0: You no. know, uh, um, Sean and I actually were trying to pitch that for the trade. We, right. we like we thought this would be an amazing cocktail whiskey, even at that high-proof point. Yeah. Um, but then Mick McShan asked me, who runs the Stanley? Um, what do you got in inventory? Um, we get your master class in three and a half weeks. Do you think we can pull it off and get another barrel here? And I was like... I got one that I love and our distributor here, Breakthrough, give him a shout out. First time shouting out a distributor on this podcast, 230 episodes in. Um, they they worked their asses off to get barrels moving here and they literally arrived the day before our event. Yeah. So I was, he's, he didn't even try it. He's like, I trust you. <laughs>
1: yeah. Look, here's the thing. Like when we've got such an abundance of inventory, like different types of red wine barrels that yeah. are aging, um... They're all great. They're all great. And we spend a lot of time, the distillers and the blenders spend a lot of time selecting the barrels that we're going to pitch to the US with a really specific brief Mm -hmm. of like, can we deconstruct Nova and Twofold through this experience? So, um, you know, the weeded barrels are magical because, well, they do what wheat does. Uh, The single malts are really great too. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's about celebrating all of that wood policy um, that's ba- ba- baked in that diverse wood policy that's baked in from all of those winemakers around Australia.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's I love the the ability to show consumers and just whiskey drinkers in general how we how we build Nova from about seventy barrels into mm. a batch and twice as many with the twofold, and then breaking that down on an individual cask level and showing people barrels that are next to each other in our bond store but how wildly different they are. But then if you think about it, those have to go in, the diversity of those casts have to go in the consistency of our make. So that that goes back to how our Blender's do an amazing job of creating consistency.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's been, you know, obviously with Solera, that was kind of the starting point of our journey towards like a really consistent product that delivers on the promise every single time. It was so important for me to kind of really make sure that um, whenever we're sampling the whiskey, whenever we're drinking the whiskey, that it's it's doing what we said it would do, or, or what that first experience of the whiskey that you had was, and now you know the sun doesn't set on Starwood around the world. And it's kind of nice to know that wherever wherever the sun is shining on a bottle, like it's the same. Yeah. You know, and and it's interesting because I think that um, a lot of people can kind of think of that as commoditizing the whiskey. Mm-hmm. But it sort of does, to your point, um, completely, completely, um, ignore the fact that these are still handcrafted products batch by batch by a team of extremely talented, um, blenders that, you know, I'm not their shoelace when it comes to (laughs) their ability to kind of craft these whiskies and get them to be imperceptibly different. Right.
0: Yeah. It's amazing. And how long was twofold selling in Australia before we launched it in America?
1: Uh, that's a really good question. I'm going to say about, um, nine it? months, oh, like okay. 12 months. Yeah. So we launched in 2018 in Australia.
0: Okay. That's what I thought we okay. launched it in July of 2019 with twofold.
1: That's right. But, um, uh, we just weren't re- when we launched in America, which is five years ago last week, by the way. Um, when we launched in America, it was um, it was with with Nova really championing the course. Yeah, it was the only thing here. We just didn't have enough twofold to sell. Like yeah. overseas, we were just kind of continually trying to keep ahead of the curve in Australia with this demand that was building for it, and then
0: so it was already progressing in Australia before mm. it came to the US. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And it, and in, you know, uh, we thought we would capture people's imagination with twofold in Australia, but not to the extent that we did. So all of that whiskey that we kind of laid away thinking it would be for export markets needed to kind of <sighs> serve the domestic market, which is not a bad thing. No, and a good then problem. we you know, we sort of caught up our demand curve and supply curve kind of met again and um, was able to um, start thinking about export markets for twofold hmm. of which the US is the biggest by far and away.
0: Mostly because Well, not because we are the biggest drinking market, but, well, we aren't the biggest drinking market, probably the most diverse drinking market in the world.
1: Yeah, and I think that um, people get it here. Like, it's so easy. It's such an easy whiskey.
0: Well, yeah, the wheat component is... But the
1: weeded part of it makes it so much easier for them to kind of, like, identify the whiskey with. Mm -hmm. And we were having some amazing whiskeys yesterday from single malt whiskey producers in the u.s and you know the big observation from my point of view is a lot of them don't use red wine barrels even though they might be able to or they don't Mm -hmm. kind of think about ex-fortified wine barrels from port from portugal or spain or wherever right Mm -hmm. um their their mindset is well we've got to win the hearts and minds of american drinkers and they know brand new american oak right Mm -hmm. and so i'm you know never say never but that's not an agenda that we want to prosecute our agenda is about red wine barrels cuz mm-hmm. they're in our backyard right but um the weeded component i can identify with their thinking because that's the same thinking i had about if we add wheat to this whiskey it's going to create a through line of flavor that'll make it some something that americans will go i see uh, this is whiskey check i see what you did here with the red wine barrels check yeah. and you know then it's a subjective opinion of like oh it's bloody delicious or thanks but i'm glad i tried it but i'll just stick to what i know you for know? sure and um so wheat is such an important part of that story but yeah it took us it took us a good nine months to catch up um in australia on on what we thought was happening over there before we launched it here
0: yeah, because when I was over in Australia in May of 2019, people were talking about Twofold, but they always like, oh, Solera and Nova are my babies. Like, that was their beginning days of Star Wars, how they found the brand and kind of holds the best to their hearts. But even though they, I think they enjoyed and loved Twofold, and you could see it kind of going into the cocktail
1: scene there. Absolutely. Look, I mean, um, of course I'm going to say this on the Bloody Founder, but like, Twofold was a game changer for the Australian whiskey scene. For sure. And, um, the reason for that was because we really changed the way we wanted whiskey perceived by mm. drinkers up until that point in time. And even Nova and Solera had done a bit of this work, but not to the extent that Twofold had done. You know, Australian whiskey was certainly something that people had heard of, perhaps, but um, was rarefied and special occasion. Mm. And I'll pull this out to imp- to, like... Show people um, a bit of local pride. And then. And they're mostly
0: making single malts distilleries over there.
1: Though, most of the distilleries were making single malts or rye. Mm-hmm. Like they were single grain distilleries, if that makes right. sense, right? They were just focused on one it's thing. Is most of the rye in Tasmania? No. Um, in fact, the biggest rye distillery probably now is Archie Rose. Oh, But yeah. for the longest of times, it was um, our good friends at the Gospel in yeah. Melbourne. And know. then, um, you know, out west in Western Australia, they were making four grain whiskies as well. Okay, like bourbon style. Can
0: rye grow out there in the west?
1: I actually don't know. I'm pretty sure it would,
0: because most of it's grown in the Southeast Corridor. Correct.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yes. So the grain, there, the grain, the the food quality grain belt of Australia, pretty much, if you drew a line between Sydney and Melbourne, yeah, and sort of that's the that's kind of the the area it grows. Um. And, um, but then there's pockets in South Australia, which make amazing barley, uh, brewing barley, as as well as Western Australia, which makes, you know, a lot of the barley that Japanese brewers use Mm. comes from Western Australia, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so how did twofold change that all? Well, I mean, we were unashamedly going after a different drinker than the tweed jacket, pipe smoking sort of Scotsman and their kin or like the (laughs) campfire and you know I only drink my whiskey neat and at 120 proof in a room like this (laughs) right so it was a very different drinker really deliberately um, that look we didn't want to alienate that drinker but Mm -hmm. we just felt like there was an opportunity for us to say and if you are new to whiskey or if you think you don't like whiskey this might actually change your mind and the reason for that is because it's so approachable. Yeah, it's um, that fruit profile really makes it something that's inviting. Um, it's really easy to drink, and um, it's really versatile. Like those red wine barrels really give us a, a canvas to paint a different picture of what whiskey is. Yeah, and so then when you think about that as a bartender, all of a sudden they've got a tool in their well that looks very different to all of the other whiskeys with an E or without an E in there to to then paint amazing pictures of cocktails too.
0: When you first came to America in March of 2019, yeah. what were your expectations of the brand with just Nova <sighs> with Tufel coming around the corner?
1: Um, I There's this line in a Coldplay song <laughs> that says, you know, nobody said it would be easy. Yeah. Um, but nobody said it would be this hard either, and I think that's kind of the, you know, that first year, yeah, which we had a clean run, right? Like we had, I, like, a, yeah, w- it was a it was a good time to be sort of talking about whiskey in the United States. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, it was, the, and you, and the, I certainly saw the entire
1: United States that year. Oh my goodness, yeah. Um, the good thing I think was that because of the American craft single malt scene. And local bourbon producers and like, you know, the craft American whiskey scene had done a lot of the heavy lifting of saying, look over here, Mm -hmm. right? Don't necessarily focus on what you've known and grown up with. Like there's a world of whiskey that is um, made differently. Right. Yeah. And so once people's imaginations were like captivated with what was available locally the idea that an Australian whiskey could captivate people's minds too was just that little bit easier. Still hard, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but at a consumer level, like at a drinker level, it was the easiest. I think the thing that really shocked me, there's two things that really shocked me in 2019, was um, just how big America is. You know, it is like, I mean, look, Australia is about the same size, yep. right? just in terms of population it's people everywhere one twentieth of the size you know in yeah. terms of population all situated in five cities none of them over five million people mm-hmm. right so you know when you think about um then just how many cities we've traveled to jake and how many people we've spoken to and then also on top of that the diversity of the audience right um i think i thought so when and when you know if we flip this around and you know, talk to a great, um, some kindred spirits in the whiskey world here and talk about, um, hey, I'd love to export to Australia. Well, what I tell them about my experience building a brand in Melbourne is pretty much the same experience they're going to have in Sydney, Brisbane, yeah. Adelaide, and Perth and Tasmania. You know, very nuanced differences, but like universally the same. There's no such thing as exporting to America. Mm. You know, we do not export to America. We. You know, we the ship arrives at a port in America, but then we're building a brand, market by market, in San Diego, LA, like the Valley, yep. Palm Springs. That's just Southern California, right? Like in each of those t- particular areas, are very different right. to Northern California. With no one down there for two years. <laughs> no, that's right. And then, and then, you know, let alone Texas or New York. Uh, Florida, Illinois, the great, you know, state of Illinois. A great state. Um, I don't claim it. Seattle. So the thing that, you know, really became obvious to me was that the message that we talk to people about needs to be curated based on the context of the city that we're in. Mm. And that's something new. You know, you don't even need, you know, like in, in the United, United Kingdom or France or Germany, other countries around the world are pretty much uniform in the approach and the stories that we're telling now there's going to be different drinkers right like high-end single barrel pickers versus like people that just love whiskey on their kind of drink cart at home but um that's interesting and different and want to move through that bottle in a week or two um but they're they behave the same way. Mm. And so that was a really big learning that we needed to kind of pivot towards very, very quickly. And then um, I think uh, because we were coming from a country that didn't have a reputation for making whiskey.
0: Yeah. uh, It's lost some people. Baffling. They're baffled by it, I should say, when I tell them how many distilleries are in Australia, how the modern movement's been happening for 30 years.
1: Yeah, there's a over 150 whiskey distilleries in Australia now. We were distillery whiskey distillery number ten, yeah. 15 years ago. So it gives you an idea of like the explosive growth that's taken in place in the rich history then. of it too. Yeah, back to the 1800s. That's right. You know, the late 18th century. You know, we're off the back of a huge gold rush. I think San Francisco and Melbourne were the two richest cities in the late uh, 19th century, I should say, 1860s in the world. Yeah. You know, and um, Uh, alcohol typically follows minors. Uh, OR. ER. ER, not OR. Yeah. Just being responsible there. There you go. Um, So... I wonder if anybody
0: under 21 listens to this podcast. I would highly
1: doubt it. Anyway. um, (laughs) We just don't want to be seen to be pitching whiskey to children. Yeah. Uh, So... That idea that... um, Whiskey Comes From Australia was very novel. And I think at a drinker level was exciting mm-hmm. and interesting. But then if we think about um, retailers outside of places like The Vault at the Stanley Hotel or, you know, amazing on-premise bars, whiskey bars in each of the cities, you know, the Seven yeah. Grands of the World and the whiskey libraries and all of amazing places that, like, love Diversity of whiskey and want to celebrate whiskey with an E, without an E, from anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, once we moved beyond that, it was a hard slog. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, in retail places out in suburban California, it'd be like, well, look, you know what? Uh, no one's asking for Australian whiskey. When they do, we'll give you a call, <laughs> right? Which is pretty, uh, you know, you... you I've got pretty broad shoulders, but it is, you know, you, yeah. you, you know, you need to um, respond to that kind of very quickly. Mm-hmm. And what we did actually was kind of reframe the conversation. So one of the big things for me was that like, ideally we have a unifying message that works at a drinker level, at a retail level, and then, Importantly, with our key stakeholders, the sales team, the distributors that we have around the country. And so um, I kind of coined this idea of the brother-in-law test. And it was like, okay, look, I have a brother-in-law. He likes me, but probably only because I'm married to his sister.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. He'll help me, but only because I'm married to his sister. So if I'm asking him to sell the whiskey... I just need to tell him the facts that are yep. going to get the sale done. Nothing more, nothing less. Cause he's only doing it right. because I'm married to his sister.
0: Cause we found out early on that leading with we're an Australian whiskey. Didn't work. Didn't work at all.
1: Yeah. So we needed to kind of reframe that brother-in-law test to being just the facts, yep. not like, david speak of like talking about the romance and the history and the story and you know the all of the riches of storytelling that we have as a craft brand and we're not alone with that uh, that's why i love talking to distillers and as you do as do you right yeah. like cause there's just so much depth to the story but we're a unique kind of audience for that mm-hmm. and at retail all they're kind of trying to do is assess for risk mm. right that shelf space is real estate yep. And it has to earn them rent right and rent is paid by margin on selling yeah. a bottle
0: i always say it's an art gallery you're renting my wall space if you don't sell i'm taking you down
1: Yep. so if that's the case then how do we present this product in a in a not riskless but like in a less risky fashion mm-hmm. when they could kind of put insert bourbon brand here on the shelf and know that it's just gonna move. And particularly when it becomes like highly sought after and irrationally kind of popular, like, you know, it's just like, well, it sells itself. Mm -hmm. So we needed to really pivot very quickly from we're an Australian whiskey um, to sort of understanding the shelf set and saying, okay, gold standard is that they have an international whiskey section, like Japanese, maybe some Indian or Taiwanese whiskey from Kavalan, Mm -hmm. great amazing right because all of a sudden it's like well you've got an international whiskey section you, you it let me tell you why you need to have starwood as mu- as a part of that set mm-hmm. right with as much humility as possible but in my mind i'm thinking you're you know it's imp like it's you're nuts not to have starwood there because from a value proposition price perspective like what we do for the category yeah. it's unbeatable the imagination of it all yeah And so, um, you know, we kind of went in there and said, well, we're the shining light of this new world category, (laughs) right? Um, And that seemed to work. It was like, okay, I see what you're doing. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Let's see how it goes. And then we needed, you know, it was incumbent upon us to help them kind of sell the product to their drinkers. It was also
0: easier when, not easier, but it made it less difficult when Twofold came around because you had two offerings. And what I found out of people tasting our stuff for the first time was, I didn't even approach them with single malt. It was, are you a bourbon or a rye drinker? Mm. And the bourbon drinkers would, I might try try our do whiskey. It has wheat in it and single malt or malt barley. And our single malt whiskey has this really great peppery spice that might be reminiscent of a rye if you're a rye drinker. And that's kind of how I got people onto Starboard through tastings in yeah. stores. Because it was, it just, it was so foreign to them that Australia made whiskey it was so foreign to them that single malt wasn't scotch. Mm. <laughs> and then it was so foreign to them that not, that our single malt whiskey was not peated.
1: Yes. So, you know, you think about that in the context of a sales pitch to retailers yeah. and it's hard work. It's hard work trying to get that down to that brother-in-law test of, look, I don't really, uh, you know, whether this works or not is not like, I'm not really passionate about. I'm just doing this as a favor. Like, so tell me what I need to do to sell it and that'll be it. And, you know, we needed to kind of, refine that and get that right and then apply that to the context i was talking about beforehand which is you know at the at the early days i think we were in 13 different markets yeah right and so it's like then there's 13 kind of curated stories as well right because they're not all the same but australia universally was maybe bullet point outside of specialist accounts who'd probably heard of us you know but never tasted us Mm -hmm. Australia was like bullet point number four on the list, mm-hmm. right? It's like, yeah, there's a new world of whiskey, right? Um, and if it's if they've got an international shelf set, you've got some already, Japanese whiskey and Indian and Thai, uh, Taiwanese whiskeys. We're a part of that category and a shining example. Let me tell you why, mm-hmm. right? We age in wine barrels. That's unique around the world. Everything comes from a day's driver. of the... You know, and we can kind of then layer the story out and it makes it... oh. And if you haven't noticed by the accent, we're an Australian distillery, right? Right. And then all of a sudden it's like the idea that like, oh, well, no one's asking for Australian whiskey was secondary because it's like, well, that's not what makes us so interesting. You know, the things that are interesting about Starwood is that like, you know, you've got curious whiskey drinkers coming into the store, asking you all the time, what's new and what's interesting. And without a shadow of a doubt, like we can kind of prove that we are new and interesting. And delicious and well priced, so that kind of was that that shelf set. And then the next shelf set was like um, no international whiskey, but perhaps some local distilleries. And it's a an, it's a it's a riff on the same story, right? So then it's you know your craft distillers are kind of really challenging the status quo. Like, Cause how many are. events did we
0: do together with craft distilleries yeah. in the beginning days? Yes, it was an easy, it's an easy transition, not transition, but an easy marriage for us to come into the market and tell similar stories. Absolutely.
1: You know, and the great thing is that I think that everybody realized that the rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. So it wasn't like, Oh, well, if I'm doing a, if I'm doing something with, you know, with this local craft distillery, then that's going to take away a sale from me. It's such an, you know, it's not the way the drinker thinks. No. The drinker's like so curious and like wants to explore the category.
0: Right. I can go back to that
1: one next time I'm here. Mm hmm. So, um, and we don't have the budget of like multinationals to be able to then sort of turn up and do all of these things individually anyway. So like sharing that love meant that we could do more with less.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was for me personally as a brand ambassador, that's how... I think I survived my job over COVID was was doing co-brand, co-branded events. We would do like five distilleries. Like, let's go to a bar and do a whiskey class and all of us can do there. Let's hope that that bar has a retail shop next door we can send people to and buy bottles afterwards and buy people drinks and get them hooked, not just on Star Wars or not just on Castle and Key or Pinhook, whoever was there, but it's like, let's get them hooked on really good whiskey. Yep. And that was just kind of something we yeah. did.
1: Interesting whiskey that talks their language. Right. You know, because... You know, you know me I, well enough to know. I get, I take issue with people kind of can, thinking that this modern era of whiskey is better than, <laughs> you know, the the whiskies, the legacy whiskies of years, you know, yeah. of years past. I think that that's a silly argument to make. You no, know, I always I'm, tell
0: people how you've, I wouldn't say you've mirrored it, but you are inspired so much by Maker's Mark to craft your distillery in that sense, and go back and pay homage to those people that had built a foundation. That was really great and has been for generations.
1: Absolutely. You know, it's not just Maker's Mark, right? It's like, you know, any, any peated whiskey is an inspiration <laughs> of mine. Yeah. And, you know, if we could be as iconic as my, you know, wild turkey one day, that'd be <laughs> awesome. And like the Belvenny Doublewood from Scotland yeah. and, um, you know, blended whiskeys like Johnny Walker Black, like all are inspirations and they're always at home.
0: I don't think I've had a Johnny Walker Black since maybe the third time you yeah. know,
1: hung out. you you know, it's much maligned. Like I mean, if you just kind of put kidding. it in a in a brown paper bag and bring it to like a a, a whiskey yeah. event
0: and just say, let's try this. I think your your test back then was Monkey Shoulder and Johnny Walker Black, because Monkey Shoulder was definitely having a moment back then five years ago.
1: Right. And everyone's like, Oh no, monkey shoulder's better. It's a single malt and you know, b- mm-hmm. b- but blah blah. It's like just try it. Yep.
0: And I think more times than not, you'd probably pick Johnny Walker.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, and that's, you know, I mean, m- what Monkey Shoulder's done for like a modern era of, uh, of whiskey drinkers and, and kind of making it more approachable and, I guess, from their perspective, cool to drink right. scotch, smart scotch. Yeah. It's been fantastic. We've been a beneficiary of that. Mm-hmm. So, but it's not who we were you know that's all
0: so after one year in the states pre-COVID before we even knew anything about that what were you thinking as the brand and the direction it was going in
1: I knew there were a few things that we knew pretty compellingly like that we had something that resonated with the drinker and bars when we could tell the story Mm -hmm. properly right and that was incumbent upon us and you know like again there's the story I want to tell and then there's the story that's like gonna make a difference to the the decision maker and they're, you know it's it's not necessarily the same thing i
0: think just put a little color into that like some of our best accounts in the first year were like angel share delilah's fountainhead all these uh, seven grand in san diego Mm. like those are the places accepting us and like how you you were pointing out it was harder to go into the more of those neighborhood bars that might have 50 60 to 100 bottles of whiskey on the shelf versus the one that want to curate a really curious section and it was, it was amazing to go into these bars across the country and have that time to talk to people who really cared about what we were doing on a, you know, for us, a very unique basis with the red wine barrel of maturation and being from Australia, that was that was unique for them and curious because people didn't know it was coming from there. But then you tell a story of like, okay, where are the grains coming from? Where are the barrels coming from? How does the heat make your whiskey so much different mm. than other, than other, uh, parts of the world or parts of America? People always want to compare it to Texas, but. It doesn't get that cool stage in texas like it does in melbourne on a daily basis correct so like that whole in-depth point of the story gave us access into these really great bars all across the country
1: and they couldn't believe it you no. know and a lot of them even 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 now are like i just don't understand how we can buy your whiskey <laughs> at the price we can compared to some of the domestic whiskeys that we love um mm-hmm. which sometimes are 20 30 40 percent more more uh more costly and that that was my big bet 15 years ago to say either we're going to do this and compete with those icons that i love at a price point that means that price isn't a barrier for people to try it or we're not going to do it right that was it and it's cost me a lot of like um heartburn and you know (laughs) blood sweat and tears to do that but it's 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 working, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that so so by before before the lockdown, it was like okay, we we're onto something here. Mm-hmm. People like the whiskey. It's not like we're kind of turning up with something that just doesn't resonate. How do we scale this? How do we kind of scale the messaging, and but still keep the intimacy of the brand? Right. That was the challenge. And I think we started to think about all right, well, let's. Be more of ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, and turn up into accounts doing smart programming. And, you know, unfortunately, we had a, you know, those terrible wildfires yeah. in tw- the beginning of 2019 and thought, well, here's a way for us to kind of show who we are from a personality perspective, connect to that Australian right. point, but also do some good. And we, we, you know, spearheaded a, a uh, cocktail program nationally where we would donate a dollar from every cocktail sold to like the... Mm-hmm. Koalas. Yeah. And people would genuinely, when I come to accounts, be like, how's
0: like, how pe- how's people at the distillery? Is the distillery burned down? I'm like, oh yeah. no, it's like not getting into the city area, but thank you for asking. People are genuinely concerned. Yeah.
1: And it was tough at the distillery. I mean, they couldn't work some days. It was right. so smoky. So um, yeah, whiskey is a very physical kind <laughs> of activity. You can kind of track how much time I've spent on the production floor by my waste dimensions. Are they
0: going to welcome you back to the Production floor.
1: Uh I think I need to do some permitting. Like I need to go through an induction program, the safety program. I need to get my forklift license. Uh, Slaney is going to put you through the ringer. Oh yeah, yeah. And it'll be about three years worth of things. Like maybe you can press the go button on the stills. You know. Oof. Um, I'm so excited to kind of spend more time with the team. Yeah, but probably more from an innovation perspective, mm-hmm. if I'm being honest, than like getting getting hot and sweaty on the floor i love that i really do i love i actually love that the best part of the process for me is the spirit the spirit still and the taking the cuts and then filling a barrel right like and just sort of setting it on its way like you know we've, we've kind of curated these barrels from wine wineries and found the ones that we want to work with and we've crafted this amazing spirit that we're going to fill into the barrels and it's like okay off you go see you in a few years yeah um yeah so we had this global you know national program that we felt really confident about it wasn't like a performative it was no. really meaningful and something that we really cared about and then three weeks later the world changed and you know and we pivoted to being you know um desktop warriors like the rest of the world did. yeah but um, a lot of
0: crying in between there, but yeah,
1: yeah, a bit of crying. <laughs> yeah, a lot of crying actually. A lot of a lot of,
0: of, ca- of self doubt in my and the hooky household, from my point of view. My wife was too busy; she was runs marketing, so she was busier than ever.
1: Yeah, yeah. The interesting thing, you know, um, the interesting thing about craft whiskey, particularly Starwood in the United States, was that um, it was a still a whiskey that was being discovered, mm-hmm. and so. I don't know about you, Jake, but I was not browsing the aisles of like, you know, uh, whiskey whiskey stores, liquor mm. stores looking for interesting whiskeys. It was like in and out. Oh, like drink covered? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was in and out or deliver something that I'd heard of before straight to my door yeah. and that's that. So unlike other brands that had already developed a reputation, we really didn't benefit from all of that sort of like big uptick in consumption. Yeah. Um, but what we did benefit from was everybody's kind of boredom and um, spending a lot of time at home yeah. uh, in front of a PC. There was a silver lining, yeah. And so we just kind we just doubled down on content, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, as our famed Zoom calls with, you know, the new world, you know, like taking people on a world whiskey tour yep. with different distilleries, whether it was us doing cocktail classes or... Um, we did some, um, partnerships with chefs, yep. uh, that was kind of our mindset of like, let's, how do we kind of keep people, how do we build awareness for the brand during that period of time? Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm, there's a bar in San Diego that I, um, we held a bit of a, a, um, a meet and greet at, it's like a dive bar. And I had a hero's welcome when I came in, It was like completely <laughs> unexpected. And it was just these groups of guys that discovered the brand during the pandemic and that's right. what got them through. Twofold yeah. got them through the pandemic because they found this thing that they all kind of loved and discovered and and now it's got that sort of sentimental value to them that mm. is in and of itself as irrational as my love of, you know, Alfa Romeos, right? And that's great. Never understand that one. It's great. Like, you know, just in terms of being able to um, see people that have fallen in love with the brand that way and... Um, that was, the, there's some of the beautiful moments of that time where we couldn't do what we wanted to do. Yeah. But we,
0: you know, you'd be in Seattle, I'd be in Chicago and we'd be on a Zoom call, people from North Carolina and 50 people yeah. on a Zoom call listen, you're listening to us, tasting our whiskey and then buying a barrel. Yep. It
1: was crazy. And so we got through it and then, you know, out of the gates it was like, okay, let's go back to some programming that sort of really talked to who we were as a brand, both um, in a retail setting um as well as a a um as well as a, a you know a restaurant and bar setting and sort of stepping leveling it up and saying okay let's move move beyond whiskey bars where people are kind of expecting to see interesting whiskies, to restaurants and bars where you might not expect to see whiskeys um, apart from the mainstream products that you're familiar with and so that's where the partnership with Michelin came in we became the uh, official whiskey of the Michelin Guide for 2021.
0: 22. It was the end of 21 into like the summer of 22. That's right. Is that right? It was yeah. a weird timing, but yeah. Yeah.
1: And um, ate well. You did eat well. I did. It. I <laughs> ate well too. Um, but, you know, it was kind of nice to say eight out of 10 American, you know, uh, Michelin star restaurants had a bottle of Starwood on the back bar. Mm-hmm by choice a couple w- cocktail placements too yeah by choice it wasn't like they would just kind of had to take us had to take yeah. it it they, was like they they wanted it
0: they had no Most. I would probably say 90% of the Michelin restaurants had no idea there was an actual spirits partner
1: yeah yeah and so, so when we turned yeah. up it was like oh they do that? Yes, they do. Would you like to taste it? Sure. Man, this is delicious. How much is it? Oh my God. Yeah, let's do this. Mm -hmm. And then as you pointed out, there was some single barrels with like Lazy Bear Oh yeah, in in, in in San Francisco and um, a signature cocktail, like lots of cocktail placements and you know, what that did for the brand was really start to elevate our standing, not only amongst foodies and people that go to Michelin restaurants, but amongst other restaurants and bars.
0: I was just going to say I got more... Access and probably more placements in the Bib Gourmand spots, which is from people that don't know It's one through three Michelin star rating and then Bib Gourmand is the next step below the stars So it's you know, there's like 65 in Chicago Bib Gourmand restaurants mm. um think of for people who listen to this podcast and been to Chicago and drink Franklin room is a Bib restaurant. It's an amazing whiskey bar, a uh, beautiful cocktail bar, one of the best cocktail bars in Chicago, then also has great food. So those type of places where, where I was like, well, I think I can get in here cause I already know these buyers or I know somebody who works there or they're not, they're open more than just two or three days a week. So that was where it was beneficial. I think from like boots the ground level with that whole project too. And getting into those restaurants that maybe they don't have the the stars and the impact that you might get in the restaurant scene, but they're also really important restaurants in individual cities.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, They're more neighborhood style restaurants, you know. And so, um, yeah, for one, you know, often also there was a multiplier effect. So for every one Michelin star restaurant that a restaurateur had, (laughs) they might be part of a group of four or five different. Restaurants, right. some of them Bib Gourmand, some of them not, that had more applicability. So we might get the bar placement and the menu listing at a Michelin restaurant, but the cocktail at the at mm-hmm. the at the other restaurant, which was moving cases and cases. So that was really something that was exciting. The challenge was that it didn't scale beyond Michelin. Yeah, you Michelin. find out,
0: oh, Michelin only goes to certain cities and ranks these places. Like, oh, they're gone to Florida. They've never gone to Texas and checked out those restaurants. Right. Yeah.
1: And so it worked in some markets, coming back to, like, we're not exporting to America. We're exporting yeah. to different states in America. Like, we just found out very quickly that, like, frankly, there were not a lot of people in Texas really cared about the, you know, um, mm. work that we'd done, great work that we'd done in California Illinois, New York, to really elevate Tennessee, the br- yeah, to, yeah. Uh, to elevate the brand in sort of that um, top tier of restaurants and bars around the world. So, um, yeah, that that, but it was good because again, these were proof points that some of that irrational belief that I had very early on that mm-hmm. we could be relevant to an American drinker was starting to kind of actually be like validated. Yeah. And um, what we then sort of started to think about it was like, okay, well, what are the common, you know, now that we've been in market for two and a half years only, but really on the ground for maybe the better part of a year. Yeah. But but in, on the, in the market for two and a half years, what have we learned about the brand that we could kind of use now to start to think about um, a more improved version of the brother-in-law test that kind of <laughs> puts that all together and something that's a little bit more universal as well across all of the markets Mm. so that um whether you're you know because case in point actually at the stanley hotel most of the visitors to the hotel are tourists right so they're going back to the midwest or the south or the east or you know the west coast and so um what is it that we want them to take away from the experience of last night that they can t- share universally, it doesn't matter where you come from about Starwood, right. was the job to be done. And um, increasingly, we felt like that was a job that, you know, two people couldn't do, you know, or even three with Katrina at that point in time on the West Coast right. and the East.
0: Because by the time. God uh, COVID came around. We only had three people on the ground for nine months, mm-hmm. 10 months, maybe. Yeah. Yep. So,
1: and so, um, you know, we've scaled the team up. That was the next job to be done was to really understand, okay, if we can get this messaging right. And if it resonates with the right amount of people, who's best place to tell that story and how mm. do we kind of get them in the right places at the right time to, to do that. And that's probably been the work that I've focused on most over the last 18 months since then. Founder. Well, n- n- more than that, right? It's more than just founder. Just giving you a rough time. No, 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 I'm really <laughs> proud of that role. Don't yeah, get me wrong. But, you should be. <laughs> um, Cause that's all like that, that is just my title now. Um, but the, the um, what I've done over the last 18 months is worked with the team in Australia and our team here to really scale out the footprint of talent Mm -hmm. that we have and um you know recruit a vice president of the United States to run the business rather than me running the business which is she's listening yes I know she is hi Elizabeth (laughs) um and then
0: it scares me that now people from our company listen to this podcast it's great it's great something yeah um I mean, it took me, I don't know, what, five years. The, uh, the, the original op- the office staff that was in place when I was over in Australia were all very excited about a podcast. And they kept asking, why isn't Dave on? I'm like, I don't know. Good
1: question. Yeah. That's kind of where it all began. Just want to make sure that, you know, he's going to stick around and, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. Um, My so plan I,
0: was to leave after the trip. I was like, I'm going to take the trip and then quit yeah, the company. Yeah, exactly. So I was yeah. just
1: waiting to see whether you'd kind of uh, leave. As I suspected you would, or just kinda of stick around and I'll put my
0: resignation at the
1: end of this podcast. Oh, don't do that. <laughs> so, um yeah, we, we we scale we've been scaling up the team since then. Right. And so I'm just doing a head count in I, my head. I know, now. I was trying to think. Thirteen, fourteen? Yeah, thereabouts. It's in the teens. And you know, so that's pretty pretty special for me, like to kind of leave um, the role of like leading the business. Right. Um, because we saw we
0: saw magic happening in so many different markets you know we built up a nice little presence in austin for example without anybody on the ground there for us but now we could have somebody physically on the ground in texas for us that's a star Award employee and having more people in california to cover that whole state as it needs to be taken care of is going to be so immense i was just talking to elizabeth actually about how I think Austin could be our number one on-premise market if we had somebody there full-time because yeah. our distributor believes in us. The people that have given us the time of day and all across that city in the cocktail scene love our whiskey, love our story,
1: and they want more of it. Yeah, and that's that's um, what what a great kind of position to be in now where we're, where we're starting to see that actually we know this will work if we put people on the ground yeah. as opposed to... Um, let's see what happens. Right. Like me being in Chicago for two months straight and not traveling like,
0: oh, we can do more.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so, so the, the great thing is the great thing is that, you know, moving into the role of founder means that like I can focus on the things that I think objectively everybody thinks I do a good job of, <laughs> which is obviously externally being, being the biggest advocate for the brand. Right. You know, um, but internally, like stoking the flames of like in the fire that burns within all of us mm. to kind of turn up every day and make some of the most delicious whiskey in the world and, you know, keep the stone rolling of innovation mm-hmm. to really challenge what whiskey can be yeah, and to make it as exciting as possible for drinkers in the world around the world. You know, that's kind of like something that's, that's, w- We deliberately and we've done some amazing stuff, but we deliberately haven't launched a twofold game changing whiskey for quite some time because, well, we're barely known in Australia with twofold, even though we're like objectively, you know, like the clear leader. Mm -hmm. And so let's let's build a brand off the back of that amazing work that we've done and then kind of like um, outdo ourselves with the next product. Um, to come down the line and, and complement all of the work that we've done at that point in time. What before we
0: launched a single barrel program in the U.S., which we can get into how we developed that on the run. Yeah. What is a single barrel scene? What is the single barrel scene in Australia?
1: It's very. Um, I think we might do maybe ten a year. Was th- Was there a program put into place before you came to America? Yeah, I mean, look, we the first project that we released was a single barrel.
0: True, yeah. I guess right, might, yeah. and
1: so we had these single barrels that companies, um, brands would select. And they're funny because it was a 100-liter cask. So that's, for Americans, what's that, 26 gallons? Yeah. So it's a half barrel and it was split between four companies because that was all they thought they could sell, right? So it kind of gives you an idea of how small, <laughs> you know, the industry was and the risks that they were willing to take with the whiskey. Yeah. Yeah um but it worked really well because we developed these you know amazing relationships with people uh that are still like beyond beyond uh business acquaintances and friends now you know yeah and so um the single ba- but but the single barrel scene in Australia is just nothing compared to what it is here Right. You know, um, this is perhaps, uh, not perhaps, it is, it's the most pro- prolific single barrel market in the world. For sure. And, um, you know, we've learned some lessons from that too, mm-hmm. right? Just in terms of many <laughs> who the right audience is for that from a retail perspective. Yeah. Um, you know, this isn't a single barrel of Blanton's that you just put on the shelf in the afternoon and <laughs> by tomorrow morning it's all gone because everybody's looking for it right uh, it needs to be hand sold mm-hmm. but when people try it and buy it they're hooked and can't wait for the next one yeah so so we've had to kind of work with retailers to say look you need to trust that we're not going to just wave this single barrel goodbye mm-hmm. at the distillery door and say off you go now it's your problem <laughs> um, that we're here to support it that we're here on the ground I li- you know live here. And um, we'll do whatever it takes to make sure that that barrel moves.
0: Was our single barrel program launched in a reaction to what was happening in in America with single barrels becoming so prolific?
1: Yes. And and the thing in my perspective, which I think was like with hindsight accurate, was that um, particularly with Starwood, it was... A deconstruction of our core products Mm -hmm. which then meant educating um, highly engaged whiskey drinkers on what makes Nova and twofold so special could be done through a platform that they understood which was these single barrels and so you know there's very rarely a quirky barrel or something that's randomly kind of pitched they all are part of the family tree of barrels that make twofold and Nova Mm -hmm. and so that's exciting to be able to sell in. Um, it's still really hard and it's still a risk for, for, for barrel owners. And, you know, obviously um, during the pandemic, there was like hundreds and if not thousands of barrels sold on a singular basis. Yeah, And that, that audience has been kind of saturated with content. And now, um, you know, I'm not sure whether that's necessarily the best way yeah. It is a way and it's going to be a way that we do it, but the best way to kind of engage with highly engaged whiskey drinkers moving forward.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with that because it's, it's slowed down. I mean, the bigger brands aren't slowing down. I think uh, Russell's did like a thousand barrels this year right. or whatever in a calendar year. So that's not slowing down in that sense, but the brands are definitely seeing, okay, retailers buying, let's say three single barrels a year, one in uh, spring, another one in the summertime and one for OND. They're having bottles left over from each barrel pick still. You know they're not moving off the shelf as fast as they might have once before, and demand for the customers is not driving it as mm. much. So, and because th- it's overwhelming with choice, you walk into an account like one of the stores we were in yesterday, a giant aisle of single barrels from all across the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, f- uh, the, a liquor store sized aisle. Right. Of single barrels, right, right. Like there, I've been to some liquor stores, say in, in New York, and that wasn't the only aisle. <laughs> no, exactly. Just with single barrels in it, and so
0: the. You know, I mean, that, was the, that wasn't the only aisle with single barrels in it. Correct. Yeah, so. yeah. They were
1: also out and about, and you know what? Like um, we were there, and they love yeah. Starwood, yeah. and like are really keen to do another barrel, and I and mean,
0: they've done two hogshead barrels, so they've done a lot of whiskey with us, and so.
1: But the point is that um, so there's still interest and desire from the retailer. They're just, I think, from a consumer point of view, they're kind of like there's just an abundance of choice, right? And so um, the challenge is how do we cut through with that? And that's something that we're up for and we'll work through. Um,
0: well, I think it's it's place it's events like last night. It's what Steve Malloy does with his uh, barrels. When I launch a barrel, I want the founder, national brand ambassador, come in and do a, a class about it. So right. at that, I'll bring thirty people in. Everybody's gonna at least buy one bottle, and if not two bottles gets you know let's say a third or a quarter of the bottles of the barrel out of the mar- out of the store or in the very quick time of one night and hopefully that catches fire then for the next one they have and the ones after
1: that exactly follow suit yeah and so you know it's been interesting to see that sort of single barrel arc move but it was really important when we launched to kind of have those that product and that content available for, yeah. for for drinkers to be able to um, understand more about what makes Starwood interesting and exciting. And coming back to the first point that I raised very early on in this podcast is that like, you know, the job, our job is to make Starwood as exciting as possible to as many people as possible. And that did that job. Mm -hmm. Now Mm -hmm. we need to scale it, right? Coming back to what we said beforehand. And I don't think that anybody anywhere at Starwood thinks that scaling the single barrel program is the best way to do that. Mm. right so you know let's keep it really special and like allocated to the top 100 accounts in the united states and that's it
0: i was just gonna say that was our original goal but you know it's you're building everything we've talked about for the last hour we're building an unknown brand in a giant ocean of whiskey yep it's out there so but we have like we have i would say we have more than more than 50 i can't off the top of my head think of it but accounts and people like we are where we are today that believe in us and whenever they're out, they want the next one to come in. Right. And we have huge retailers that are behind us in that sense too. That are buying three to five barrels a year. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Which is exciting and very humbling to kind of go into some of the largest liquor chains in the world by definition.
0: Right. And then hear from other brands that those buyers are talking about you guys when you're not around. Yeah, in good ways.
1: Other brands, other whiskey brands pitching single barrels—they're yeah. told about Starwood single barrels. Yeah, I and mean, it's pretty humbling to right. kind of hear that, and uh, I'm extremely grateful for that. But that all comes back down to, you know, the work that we do at the distillery every day to make, you know, that like I said earlier, that delicious whiskey yeah. that's, um, you know, lives every, lives and breathes all the values that we have as a brand.
0: I've had so much craft whiskey, like being immersed in it for almost ten years now, and. I don't get how our whiskey is so good <laughs> to be honest for it to be only three to four years. It's, it's the, the, I, red, I, I the know barrels
1: it. are the secret sauce. I've right. Telling everybody, right. But
0: No, but it's even just the way we just still like tasting that yeah. off the still. And there's something different about it. You know, you've worked for distilleries that the whiskey tastes good the still, but then it goes back to your point. Like, what are you doing with the barrel? What is your wood policy? What's your barrel programming to make sure that you're getting, like, you know, I'll leave your Scottish jokes aside about barrels and how much the flavor we pull from them and where they're getting their barrels from. But if we are really getting somewhere between 60 to 70% of flavor from a barrel, that's where you have to put so much attention and focus into, like that's yep. going to make or break your company at the end of the day.
1: Absolutely. You know, and, and it's funny, right? Because we, you know, at its simplest twofold is just like a weeded whiskey that's aged in red wine barrels. Yeah. But it's so like reductive to yeah. kind of say that. Well, it'd be and new. you hear that
0: people like an average customer hears that like, Oh cool. I love finished whiskeys. Oh yeah. great. Then you're really going to love this cause it's not finished. Yeah. It's been in a cast for four years inside of one wine barrel for its whole time. People, yeah. people don't get that because no. it, it's been taught that a finish is three to 12 months. We made a bourbon, made a rye, made a scotch, whatever it might be. And we put it into this. People don't know why they put them in those barrels. But they know they like them at the end of the day, which is fine. That's all they need to know. But we're doing it to create a whole different flavor profile of whiskey. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yes. But, you know, my point My point is like, you know, and that's the mastery of like complexity, right, Is mm. is to make it sound simple. Yeah. And, you know, that's what we've been doing for 15 years. And like, I think we're like at the... You know where we're really hitting our stride in terms of doing that like mm. simplifying the complexity not in terms of process or or um rigor or controls you know to kind of get to that point but just in terms of the way we talk about it that's yeah. been you know if i had to kind of summarize everything that i've learned about america and how you know thinking about my role now as founder and you know, stoking the flames internally, being the biggest advocate of the brand globally, not the least of which still in America. Like, I think actually you'll probably see more of me now than you will have Shocking. beforehand um, is, uh, is that is like simplifying that message and not overcomplicating it. And, and then really starting to like take what we've learned from the hardest market in the world mm-hmm. to build a brand in and applying those learnings back in Australia, back into Europe, back into Asia. sure they love that. Um, because let's face it, um, we're the local hero in Australia. Right. It's easy to sell whiskey when you're the local hero and the most affordable and the most delicious and most <laughs> awarded, right? It's easy. But what, you know, how much are we leaving on the table in terms of like people that don't know any of that stuff in Australia? And what could we what can we take from all of the hard work that we've done over the last four and a half years five years literally last week Mm -hmm. in america to 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 scale up that brand in in australia and take it to the next level so it's daunting i think for a lot of people at the distillery they're going to be spending more time there but uh (laughs) it's going to be great i'm sure it will
0: be great what would be the biggest thing you could change about the direction of the last five years you've learned and implement that back to day one, if you could?
1: Uh, yeah, I think it's that understanding. You know, if we come back to that brother-in-law test, yeah. it's like I kind of fell into that. Mm-hmm. I just, if I, I wonder if we had kind of understood that that was the case before we had arrived mm-hmm. and kind of taken that for a walk, even at home more compellingly, how much more like um, traction we could have got in that first year before the lockdowns. Right. Hmm. Because the good news is, thankfully, that a lot of the brands that we worked with, a lot of the companies we worked with before um, the pandemic that survived are some of Starwood's biggest fans now. Right. And so I guess I think, well, sure, we're still growing Mm -hmm. and that's having, you know, the ripples of that are, are amazing. Right. But what if we could have had more of a sort of base beforehand you know with hindsight yeah getting that messaging right and having a platform that kind of communicated that before we arrived in America that was universal like across all of our markets in Australia in America in Europe and and um, all you know Asia would have been you know the biggest thing that I think would have helped us scale even further than we have. And that's not regrets. It's just hindsight's a wonderful thing. Just learning. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough market to learn into. Yeah. And very expensive, you know, Jake's kind of, uh, you know, appetite for Mm. headbands and like headbands, um, uh, like, yeah, ponytail kind of uh, scrunchies is like insatiable. Very, very large. Very expensive. Very expensive, this little nylon thing right here on my wrist. So like, uh, you know, we're, we're an Aussie dollar. The good news is that, you know, um, we're an Aussie company, so we earn money in Aussie dollars, but we also spend money in Aussie dollars. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, that's one and a half. So if it's a dollar here, it's a dollar 50, right? right? So... You know, that's not lost on anybody I know here. They understand that. But it's like, you know, coming back to what we're saying, it's just those mistakes learned here on the ground are one and a half times more expensive than they are in your home market. Good point. Never thought about it that
0: way. Huh. Interesting. Well, I guess we have to leave now, catch a flight. Yes, we do. Drive an hour and a half down a mountain first. Yeah, that'll be fun. Yeah, it will be. You can listen to some more of your whatever music you were playing the other day.
1: I think it was just like Apple pop hits Oh bit of Barbie soundtrack. What else was there? Uh,
0: I don't know. I haven't seen Barbie
1: yet. Brand oh you gotta watch it. That's amazing I've been told um, Brandy Carlyle She's amazing If I would
0: get off The day-to-day contracts Of my job And make more money Oh, yeah, posh, <laughs> Contracts <laughs> Someone did believe that one time I can't remember where we were But that yeah, was quite funny um, Well, no It's been an amazing Four and a half years I'm glad we ran into each other Yeah it Changed my life For the better I'm pretty sure I think
1: well, you've changed mine too, mate. I don't know if that's true. No, it's very true. Like just the responsibility that you have for other people um, where things are not, you know, in Australia, thankfully, you know, we're, we're at a point at which um, the distillery is making money, right? Like right. it's it's like if we didn't have it, <laughs> if we didn't have America, <laughs> um, it would be a business. And so like, you know, the 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 responsibility that the team has there, the, the, the leadership team has there is about growing the brand, not like survival. And so, um, it's where I thrive the most as a founder and as as a startup business. It's always been where, I've you know, where the stakes are the highest Mm -hmm. and my back's against the wall. And like, we just got to keep pushing, but, um, just having, having that responsibility of, uh, like, making sure that we were doing everything we could to build this brand in the right way for people that, you know, fundamentally care about it. Like you have like mm-hmm. all, you know, been so lucky with all of the people that we've had here to kind yeah. of yeah. find good people that love the brand, you know, sometimes I think more than I do, <laughs> um, uh, has been such a gift. Mm-hmm. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm so, yeah, like you, grateful and thankful that we bumped into each other. I knew it would work, you know, I was,
0: I wasn't sure what was happening that that was a strange day and I've told it many times on this show, but, um, yeah, very serendipitous essentially. And uh, that was the best way to describe it because, you know, I walked into that whiskey event from one interview and had another offer on the table and you and I went and got a beer and it's like, I called Brittany afterward while walking back to the train and I was like. I think I just got offered a job by an Australian guy. she's like, what, what are you talking
1: about? <laughs> it's very random. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but it's, you know, it's it it like so
0: many people in the, con- I've, I've, I knew Star Wars. I hadn't got a chance to try it yet. And I was actually telling McShane last night, my story of tasting Nova. And I just kept finding different things in mm. it. And I'm like, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Like, That's a wonderful thing. And it is, it is a wonderful thing. And it wasn't until I was at Delilah's one night with Wilson uh, and a couple other people that become friends that were just regular patrons and was passing some drinks around of Nova and I'm like everyone's like, This is really, really good. And I'm yeah. like, It is, right? Like yeah. I made the right choice, right? And they're like, Yeah, hundred percent. Yes. So, um four plus yeah. years later still being here, you're like, I'm glad I didn't make that choice. Yeah. Definitely me too, definitely mate. was the right one.
1: Me too. Um, we should wrap it
0: up. Yeah, you probably should, but um thanks for everything. Uh America will miss you. Well apparently they won't because you'll be here no, more I'm going
1: to be, I'm look genuinely, genuinely. I'm going to be to my travel schedule will not change in, in terms of like what's going on in the United States over the next, well, at least four or five months that we've got mapped out. Like it's the same schedule that I would have had if I was in Seattle. Yeah. It's just that, um, there's lots of demand for me now in Asia and, uh, and Europe as well as Australia, obviously. So, um, like I said, i i my zip code's probably going to be LAX, not, uh, not seattle that's all that's changing
0: you heard it here first well thanks for everything and look forward to where we go in the future me too mate all right cheers everybody cheers